Welcome to Legal Nurse Podcast, where you will get tips to expand your legal nurse consulting skills. Every week, you'll hear from experts from within and outside of legal nurse consulting. They will share their knowledge to help you grow. Your show is moderated by Pat Iyer, a legal nurse consultant with 30 years experience. So join our community, sit back, relax, and get ready to learn. Here's Pat. Hello, this is Pat Iyer with Legal Nurse Podcast. I am bringing to you today Becca Swan, who is a legal nurse consultant in St. Petersburg, Florida. She entered the legal nurse consulting field after getting some preparation from University of Iowa College and is now part of the greater Tampa Bay LNC community. Becca has had some experience working for an LNC company and is now on her own. She is the owner of Swan Consultants and works with both defense and plaintiff attorneys. And she's also, as you will hear, a critical care nurse. Becca, welcome to the show. Hi, Pat. Thanks so much for having me. Let's do a quick overview of the kind of work that you did when you were assisting a legal nurse consulting firm, and then we'll talk about what you found when you went back into the critical care environment. Sounds great. Um, my role as an LNC in a firm, which when I say that, it, I don't mean it's your typical law firm, so not for a plaintiff or a defense firm. It was actually an LNC firm. So I worked for a company, which is a really cool concept that housed a handful of legal nurse consultants. Um, and this was my first role. It was an excellent way to get experience, get training, um, and just be surrounded by experienced legal nurse consultants. Um, so we, as a team of nurses, um, which is how nurses love to work as a team, um, would work for numerous attorneys. So we worked for plaintiff and defense attorneys. Um, we did all kinds of things, anywhere from uh, medical malpractice, wrongful death, birth injury, mass tort, um, personal injury. We, it was incredible. I got so much experience um, and that I was just uh, one nurse of many on the team. And so it was great to pick everybody's brain and um, just be able to learn every day. All right. It sounds like a wonderful experience. It was. Yeah, I'm very lucky um, for the opportunity and have gotten to learn about the LNC role from them. And now you transitioned out of that into owning your own business. And also tell us about your experience as a critical care nurse. Did you have critical care experience prior to starting to do legal nurse consulting, or did you develop that afterwards? Great question. Yes, uh, critical care is actually my background. As soon as I left nursing school, that's where I started. Um, so I started out in the ICU, and I got five years of experience, and then I transitioned into the LNC role. Um, and then I came back to the bedside after a couple of years and the LNC job. And what month and year did you go back into critical care? <laughs> Great question again. 
that was November of 2020 um, is when I went back to the bedside to go back to being a critical care nurse. Now we are at this point that we're recording this. So we're recording it in October of 2022. Two years, almost two years to the date as to when you returned. How had the critical care environment changed when you returned to it in November? I came back to the ICU setting as a stranger. Um, I came back into a COVID ICU because my primary um, background is pulmonary and medical ICU. So that is exactly what a COVID patient is. They're medical and especially the lungs. Um, It was just vastly different. There was, it was crisis mode a hundred percent of the time. Um, There were shortages and not only staff, but in supplies, which is something in the critical care we were, it seems looking back now, so wasteful in some of the areas because you need to be so clean and sterile. Um, But there were shortages on IV fluids, on blood tubing um, to take blood samples, certain medications were a high commodity. Um, It just It was a different world that I walked into coming from pre-COVID ICU setting. What do you do when you don't have enough blood tubes to take blood? That's something that I personally have never run into. So how do you come up with a solution for the shortages of supplies? It was kind of like a who needs it the most, whose care is going to change by the outcome of this lab. Um, some labs were readily available and that was okay, but there were some, um, like the troponin, which is a cardiac marker. Um, and if, so if we had a severely ill COVID patient that wouldn't be able to survive a cardiac intervention or treatment from a cardiac problem, unfortunately they were going to be a lower person, but on the list of getting that blood draw, um, So it kind of came down to who would it affect the most and impact the most positively is who got either the IV fluids or the blood draw for that time. That is a different way of looking at it, isn't it, Becca? You're looking looking more at an environment of care, or if I can use the word ecosystem of patients in a broader way than would typically take place. You as a critical care nurse would be thinking about the needs of your patients and not necessarily be in that mode of figuring out who gets the blood work done. I would assume that would have to be part of the intensivist roles or a charge nurse, like who makes those decisions? Yeah, that was, it kind of depended on which hospital, um, but small background, I uh, took multiple contracts. I'm a travel nurse by trade. Um, And sometimes it was the infectious disease physician. If it was just COVID patients, they were kind of the primary consult or it was the intensivist, just depending on which hospital. And we would typically do like a grand round every morning. So you would talk about your patients in depth with either that infectious disease doc or the pulmonologist and the charge nurse pharmacy 
um, respiratory therapy would all be there with you. And you would kind of go, what's, what's the most important thing for this patient? What's going to benefit them the most? And I, there, I'd only have two to three patients. However, they would have probably 20 at least in the ICU setting for themselves to have to decide what was the most important. And we know that at the height of the COVID pandemic, that the critical care patients were also receiving critical care in other places other than the traditional critical care unit. There were ERs and there were nursing units and there were recovery rooms and and all types of geographical spots within the hospital that had to start providing critical care just to handle the influx of patients and their needs. Yeah, that is absolutely true. Um, there were, I worked in a hospital where I worked as an ICU nurse in their recovery, their OR recovery, so the PACU. Um, and that was a whole new world for me because I am used to uh, doors that close and the privacy and my patients have privacy um, and it was just curtains. And for the most part, those curtains were open. Um, we were all in protective equipment, the whole shift. Um, you would have to leave in order to take it off. Um, and you just cared for COVID patients um, in this PACU. And it was, it, again, just kind of constant crisis mode. Um, just so such a high intensity environment in an area that wasn't necessarily created for that. Mm -hmm. And I want to break that down a little bit, Becca, because you've made me curious. You mentioned being in protective gear. Tell us what that feels like to be in the face mask, that tight N95 mask and gloved and gowned for hours at a time. Yeah, and that was actually one of the hardest things to go back with in November, too, was you would wear an N95 mask. Um, and also that depended on the hospital as well. Um, you'd wear an N95 or uh, like a 3M kind of big plastic face mask. Um, and then probably another mask over that to help protect because you want to you want to guard that N95. It was the only one you got typically for a week, sometimes mm -hmm. more. Um, and then goggles or a face shield and, um, the little bit of like, uh, personality you got was a surgical cap and you could bring in your own that you would wash. Um, and so that would bring a little bit. And then on top of that, you would wear a gown and gloves and typically booties over your shoes. Um, so head to toe, you were covered, um, and it it took a lot of adjusting to um, just the physical demands of nursing and um, any inpatient nursing. It takes a lot of work. Um, it was hot and it was exhausting. And then it, that lack of emotional connection with your patient, because you're completely covered. They can't see you. They can't even see your name badge underneath your um, gown. Mm -hmm. so, mm -hmm. That was all very difficult to, transition back into with that too. And then you mentioned at least a couple of times that you were in constant crisis mode. Tell us what that's like. It is very intense. Um, 
it seemed like, especially with some of the, when I first came back, the wave of COVID was everyone was very sick in the ICU. Um, multiple codes, which is when the patient cardiac or respiratory arrest, um, and you're trying to revive them. And when I came back, or before I came back, there'd be maybe one code a shift, and that was a big deal. Everybody was assisting. Um, everyone's brain was putting in ideas of how can we help this patient? What can we do to get them out of this code? Um, there would be three to four a shift, and that was probably a good day. Um, the code carts were constantly outside patients' rooms, not tucked away in their corners where they normally were. Um, there were AED pads on patients just preventatively because it felt like that's what was going to happen. And um, you as nurses know that nursing intuition, when you feel like something's going to happen, you want to, you were, and that's just kind of how you constantly felt. You, you constantly feel like there's something that's going to happen. So you're just constantly trying to prevent a code. Um, and that was, really difficult mm -hmm. yeah it, it's a very apt description of a continuous crisis environment yeah but then what does that do to you and to the other critical care staff to be in that state yeah um it's a lot of burnout and fatigue um and there was already and already a high environment, high for burnout and fatigue, it created it even, even more so. Um, and on top of that, I think a lot of, it's a lot harder to have empathy in certain situations. Um, and that's a huge part of our job. I mean, that's a huge part of being a nurse is being empathetic towards your peers, towards your patients, towards every, towards family members. Um, and I think it led to a lot of you're in a crisis mode. So those things don't matter as much because you're just trying to keep somebody alive as opposed to trying to make a relationship or trying to make something a little bit more meaningful for the worst days of a person in their family member's life. And if we think about the implications of this, because as legal nurse consultants, we could be contacted by an attorney who says, I believe there was a medication error involving my client in a critical care unit. How does the stress of working in that environment affect the patient's safety associated with multiple drips, multiple medications, multiple adjustments of titrations of things? You know, did you see from your perspective, standing at that bedside or running from bedside to bedside, the impact on patient safety. Before we continue with the show, I'd like to share this special announcement with you. It all comes down to emotions. What does your attorney client really want from you? The experience you deliver to an attorney as an LNC involves much more than well-researched reports carefully considered opinions, and timely delivery of product. The attorney needs these results, but what they add up to is what counts. 
That's the feeling and the confidence that the attorney has in your ability to take care of his or her needs. That's an emotional reward. Let me provide you with a concrete example of what this means. I was recently talking to an attorney I'm working with and he said, I had a meeting with my partners yesterday and I told them that everything that Pat touches turns out smoothly, unlike some of the people who are employees who work in this law firm. And he was talking about his stress level in particular, and I realized that what I do is I make his life less stressful because he can rely on me to complete the assignments that he's giving me. And I'm always there to fill in the holes for him. I'm in the business of making him feel that there aren't going to be any surprises. That's what he's paying for. If you provide that level of comfort for your attorney clients, you will prosper. My book, How to Heat a Fiery Brand for Your LNC Business, Tips to be Noticeable, will help you learn to provide the kind of service that keeps attorneys returning with cases for you. Order it at lnc.tips forward slash creating series. Now let's return to the show. Absolutely. Um, on top of all of that stress, just baseline, even in a perfect world, if we had all the medications and all the nurses that we needed to be in a critical care unit, um, it still would have been a higher risk because of the crisis mode. And however, we did not have those things. Um, at best, you should have a COVID patient probably should have been a one-to-one -one in a critical care setting before I came back. If your patient needed to be prone, which is moved onto their stomach to help expand their lungs, that was a one-to-one -one patient. Um, that's a very sick patient. Um, and there were nurses that would have, including myself, would have two to three patients, sometimes even four critical care patients, and some of them would be that critically ill. Um, and one of the things that we did for COVID, be it right or wrong, was the IV pumps were moved outside of the room. Um, and that meant that the IV tubing was extended significantly to get to the patient. Mm -hmm. um, and this was good in the way that I could hear the IV pumps beeping. So I knew if there was an occlusion, I knew if the medication was running out. Um, and those were important because every COVID room was shut. So if it was beeping and I didn't hear it for a minute, that patient could have gone without the medication, had it kinked and it wasn't going to them. So in that aspect, it was great. However, it's more of an infection risk. There's a longer tubing. Um, and then also uh, there's more of a chance of the wrong medication going to the patient. There, yeah, how you said multiple continuous drips, there could be eight drips running into a patient and you have to make sure those are compatible um, and when you have a 10 foot IV tubing running to the patient, making sure the compatible runs are running into the same line. And when you're changing all of those, it is a very difficult task. Um, and retracing your lines every shift, every time you come in. Um, and unfortunately, during my time back, there was more than one time where I would have to report a medication error because I would have to switch tubing or line because when I came into my shift and I checked my lines that they weren't running appropriately. Um, and mm -hmm. that, that just 
was one of the scariest things for me because those are critical medications. Um, and so when you say that they weren't running appropriately, tell me what that means. Yeah, so it could have been going into a port that was not compatible. So two medications aren't always compatible. Um, mm -hmm. They can crystallize and then that could ruin either that IV site or um, the central catheter, the PICC line, whatever it is. Um, or it could be being, we bolus some medication. So if it's a pain medication or a sedation medication, we sometimes bolus those. Um, and that's okay because patients need a little extra sometimes. Um, however, those cannot be connected to a line or behind a line of something that would be like a vasopressor or a vasodilator, um, which would alter your blood pressure. Because then if you got a bolus of that, it would either significantly increase or decrease your blood pressure. And that's very unsafe. Um, and with an unstable patient, that could ultimately it could kill them. Um, mm -hmm or at least sent them into an episode that is unsafe for them and their heart is already very tired. Um, and even think something like insulin. Um, some, a lot of patients had trouble with blood sugar control, so they would be on an insulin drip. And if that were to get bolus in inappropriately, can also significantly decrease um, blood sugar and have significant implications on a patient. Do you have reason to believe that that happened to the patients in your units? I can't say for certain, um, but coming in and having to correct lines and figuring that out, I think it is, it can be assumed that it has happened to mm -hmm. patients. Yeah. One of the ways that hospitals coped with this was bringing in med surge nurses to the critical care unit, calling them nurse extenders or similar terms. Were you working in units where that was the case? Yes, absolutely. Um, there was a hospital I worked at who they would give me four patients and their reasoning for it was because I had, it was typically um, the med surge there was overflowed as well. So it was typically labor and delivery or mother baby nurse um, that would come in be like my tech or my resource nurse, um, which I appreciated the help, but there's so many critical care aspects that a full head to toe assessment on four patients that are critical care is, she wasn't able to help me out with that. Um, and so it's helpful in a way of it wouldn't be doable at all without those resources. However, it was inappropriate that nurses were still over, like given over an appropriate amount of a patient assignment in order just because they said that they had this nurse as a helper. And on staffing on paper, it looks good because there is another nurse on the unit and mm -hmm. she is an RN. However, that RN is not trained to do the work on that unit. Um, so even if a even if a drip beeped, all that that nurse really could tell me was that my IV pump was beeping. Um, they didn't have access to our critical medications to draw them out, um, to even get a refill for me or anything like that. Um, so if I was stuck in a room with a sick patient, that wasn't that floating nurse was not the one that was able to help refill my IV pump or make sure that um, my 
if my titration on a medication needed to go up or down, she wasn't able to do that. Um, it was one of the very few critical care nurses on the unit that would have been able to help and they were probably busy as well. Mm-hmm. One of the concerns that I've heard from wound care nurses is the increased number of pressure sores or COVID sores associated with the critically ill patients that we're describing. Did you see that number or that trend increase in the units where you were working? Absolutely. Um, Due to the staffing shortages and not just that, it was also the isolation status, that every single patient was in an isolation status. It's harder to want to walk in a room, get dressed up head to toe and clean and turn um, those patients appropriately. Um, And they're already so ill and malnourished and at a high, high risk for skin breakdown and wounds um, that there were few COVID patients that I had that didn't have some sort of hospital-induced pressure injury or wound. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the trouble with like liability, especially the first couple waves, um, is that unfortunately the wounds weren't probably the long-term damage is done um, coming from like a legal perspective um, that it was a form of negligence. However, the COVID in the long-term, like the since the survival rate was so low once they got to the critical care setting um, that I don't know. Once they got out to like a long-term care facility and like it's preventing their um, rehab and their improvement and things like that, wounds will be a much more important aspect of liability for hospitals. Mm-hmm. And did you ever get COVID yourself? Ironically, I did not get COVID at all while I was working at the bedside. I did just get COVID in August of 2022, and I hadn't been at the bedside for a couple months. I had taken a break from my assignment. So personally, I since I came back a little later, I think I got lucky with having a little bit more appropriate PPE um, and getting as crazy as it sounds, one mask every week as a new mask instead of a broken down one, having it for a whole month. Um, Because I know so many of my um, old coworkers and my friends that are other nurses, especially in the critical care setting that were so, so sick during 2020. and even some of them that are still dealing with COVID, like long-term, long-haul COVID. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think that is probably another area of liability as well, um, that you as a nurse were not protected from the patient population um, and not given the appropriate um, equipment to stay safe at the beginning, especially. Yeah, at the beginning of the pandemic, it was such a huge challenge because of lack of equipment. I talked to a nurse who described her personal protection was they told her to cut a hole in the top of a garbage bag, like a 55-gallon garbage bag, and put her head through it and cut holes for the arms, and that was her gown that she had to wear in the nursing home and she protested 
it didn't go well for her when she protested, let yep. me say. Yep. Yeah, they did not appreciate any pushback. Um, and and we were reusing gowns, which was an unheard of thing before I came back mm-hmm. to the bedside too, that a gown is single use after you have been in a patient room with an isolation gown, you do, it goes in the trash appropriately and you do not touch that again. Yes. Uh, I can remember yellow with long cuffed sleeves that are white tie in the back at the neck and the mid thorax. I had that burned into my brain as an isolation gown that may or may not be universally available as we're talking to people in this podcast from many countries and it might not be yellow or it might not exist in their country. Mm-hmm. Is there any other aspect of the challenge of working in the critical care unit that we haven't talked about that you'd like to share your experiences? Um, during, so before I left the bedside, I would say that I was a relatively like young nurse in critical care. I had five years of experience and it seems like that's an okay amount of experience. But at the time I was pretty young. I was one of the younger people on my unit. When I went back, um, a lot of the senior staff and most units had left. Um, People that had been at the bedside for 20 to 30 years were, they either got infected and they're like, absolutely not, I'm leaving the bedside. Um, or they just left because they weren't being treated well. Um, and the staffing was not great. Um, so there were multiple assignments that I took after going back in November of 2020 that I was constantly the most senior nurse and that I would be as a travel nurse, the, um, the charge nurse, I would be who they look to for resources, who they want to know how we should run this code before the physician gets here. Um, and that was the, that was a challenge at first. I feel like I was able to step up and into the role okay. Um, but as an essentially a visitor to their units, it just felt unreal to be the person that they are looking to for guidance. Um, mm-hmm. And I think, I think that continues, um, even though we're kind of out of crisis mode now with COVID that uh, senior staff is gone. And those nurses that graduated in 2020 are now the senior staff and their units. Um, And I know some that are offered charge nurse roles already. um, And I, they probably had to grow up way too quickly in their role of nursing. Mm -hmm. Um, And that sense that they kind of just hit the ground running and didn't get as much training as they should have, because we were so short staffed. It was, we were so happy to have a body just to take care of nurses or take care of the patients. So yeah, that was another big one. And then how long did you last, Becca, in this role? You mentioned you're not doing it now. Um, I've just taken a break. Um, I'm probably going to go back here around the holiday season um, to do another critical care assignment. Um, but it was about a year and a half. I ended in April of 2022, my last assignment this year. Um, and I've been working primarily on uh, legal nurse consulting since then. Um, But um, we all as nurses draw back to patient care a little bit, I think somehow. Um, And so I'm going to take another assignment and I am interested to see if it's changed 
since April too, because we were still in a little bit of crisis mode from the Omicron variant at that time too. Mm-hmm. I am sure that you will be welcomed with wide open arms when you raise your hand and say, I'm interested in working. <laughs> I hope so. Can you give our listener a sense as we wrap up about what services you offer as a legal nurse consultant and how best can people reach you? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, as a legal nurse consultant, I specialize in behind the scenes work for plaintiff and defense attorneys. Um, Any chronologies, merit reviews, uh, medical record organization um, on a broad array of um, medical legal topics, anything from personal injury for motor vehicle accidents, wrongful death, um, nursing home negligence, um, medical malpractice, and and mass tort. Um, And my email is Becca, B-E-C-K-A-H, at swanconsults.com. And that is the best way to get a hold of me. It would be my email address. All right. And let me spell that again. B-E-C-K-A-H swan. And that's your name. And it's Becca at swanconsult.com. Yes, that's correct. Perfect. Becca, thank you so much for sharing your perspectives. I know that after listening to you for half an hour, I'm thinking what an incredible amount of stress that everyone in the critical care unit must have experienced during the intensity. And it's already an intense environment to begin with. And adding on that layer of all of the drugs, all of the challenges, inexperienced staff, people frequently dying and not being able to have family members at the bedside to support them during that transition. There's a lot that we ask nurses to go through. There absolutely is. And kudos to you for planning to go back and to sharing (laughs) your knowledge with attorneys in a different way. Thank you. I appreciate that. Well, thank you for being a guest and thank you to the person who's watching this right now. Be sure to go to legalnursebusiness.com and check out the special reports that we have to help you build and grow your LNC business. We would love to have you come back again for the next show, which will be right after this one. You'll see a brief coming up video at the end of this interview with Becca, so you know what's ahead. And thanks so much for being here. My name is Pat Iyer, and I have with me Nancy Stuck, who is an experienced nurse, an experienced legal nurse consultant, and an experienced emergency department nurse. Nancy is an expert witness, an expert fact witness, and a behind-the-scenes consultant, and we've just finished a podcast. Nancy, what were some of the things that we covered in the show that we just completed? Well, we spent a lot of time about pre-hospital before the patients even come into the emergency department. Um, One of the things we talked about is how do providers get to the scene who calls them through 911 
And then once they are there, who makes the decision of this patient being transferred away from the scene, whether it goes by ambulance or by flight. Um, there's actually um, EMS field guide of, is developed by the American College of Surgeons that helps, that can help the uh, companies make that decision. Uh, we talked also about the stress that EMS providers must go under. Um, sometimes they witness crimes while, the, while they're trying to take care of a patient. Um, they have to worry about their own safety as well as the safety of their patient. Safety of the people in, the, in an ambulance or a helicopter, both types of transports have been uh, involved in crashes and we talked about different uh, instances of that. We also talked about the controversy of backboards, how their um, the universal protocol is not to use them as often as they used to be, and talking about the difference between types of neck collars, a soft collar versus a hard collar. And then we also talked about in more rural areas, the use of the chase car to provide extra, a higher level of care to EMS on the scene um, from an additional provider. Wonderful, Nancy. If you're involved in reviewing cases with rescue squad records, fire department records, basic life support, advanced life support, or helicopter transport, you'll want to be sure to watch this episode of Legal Nurse Podcast on our YouTube channel at Legal Nurse Business or on the audio channels like Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or our website at podcast.legalnursebusiness.com. Thanks so much. You'll not want to miss Nancy Stuck's podcast. And this is Pat Iyer saying, be sure to get it. Thanks so much. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Check out Pat Iyer's resources for legal nurse consultants on LegalNurseBusiness.com. Pat coaches legal nurse consultants so they make more money, get more clients, and avoid expensive mistakes. Check out her coaching program at LNCAcademy.com. Please subscribe to our podcast and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Join our community to get notified of each new episode and to receive the transcript of today's program. Complete the request form on podcast.legalnursebusiness.com. We appreciate you and your interest.